calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. So this actually started with uh, when, I, um, when I was a finance professor at Yale. I, at some point in early 2008, I, I realized, and in fact, in the papers also, I read about uh, an attractive opportunity in the uni bond market. And I wanted to take, a, you know, take advantage of that. Before that, I had held some ETFs in my portfolio. But, uh, but in this particular case, I, um, there was a muni bonds were very, where their valuations were crushed uh, right after the Bear Stearns episode. So I wanted to go long munis and go short treasuries. And I wanted to do that uh, in some way that would give me leverage, would give me kind of easy access in and out of the trades. So I started looking into some muni bond ETFs. And I noticed that that's when it kind of struck me. Before, I, I thought that ETFs were just a just like um, an index mutual fund. I didn't think that there were any pricing issues involved. I thought that they would be very efficiently priced. But then suddenly, when I looked at a couple of different alternatives, I noticed that they weren't, they, the funds were supposed to be almost identical, but they really weren't moving together that closely. They were kind of correlated, but, uh, but f very far from being perfectly correlated. So, and I noticed it really mattered which fund I traded each day. So that kind of personal experience, uh, first, uh, um, you know, in my own portfolio kind of led me, kind of made me realize that these things are, these products that I thought were super simple would be very efficiently priced. Uh, there, there was actually a lot more subtlety in that. And, uh, and so I, that, that's kind of when I thought that it might be worth uh, looking at this more broadly. Just not just looking at a handful of, ET, handful of muni bond ETFs, but let's look at this uh, more broadly across the entire spectrum of ETFs. And, and, uh, and certainly interestingly, I found that there was, uh, there was even these uh, inefficiencies that, are, that kind of exist more broadly, not just uh, limited to a handful of ETFs. Uh, in fact, yeah, exactly. Uh, so some people suggested initially that maybe if it, there are certainly some ETFs that have broader, uh, kind of wider bid-ask spreads. They thought that if I'm picking the mid midpoint uh, between the bid and the ask price, uh, this might give some kind of false sense of uh, inefficiency if that's not kind of the most commonly traded price at that time. But I did adjust for that. I did look at, uh, in fact, I specifically, in one of my methodologies, I pick, uh, so I, I typically work with closing prices, but, I, uh, but at the, within, within the closing prices, I looked, at the, I looked at the bid and the ask price, and I picked the point between the bid and the ask that, was actually, that actually gave me the smallest possible discount, so basically closest to zero. And still, you get very similar results as you'd get with just the bid-ask midpoint. So that, when you run the numbers, you'll just find that that's that's really not not, not the explanation here. So there's a few things that contribute to that. I looked at um, creation of redemptions, which. Um, so let me just kind of take a step back here and just uh, emphasize the fact that when, so, so the basic principle here is, let's say an ETF is uh, trading at a 1% premium, then um, the, some of these uh, official kind of authorized participants, uh, basically arbitrageurs between the underlying and the ETF, 
those are authorized participants can come in, they can buy the underlying portfolio um, at a lower price if the ETF is trading at a premium. They buy the underlying at a low price, then convert that into ETF shares, and then sell the ETF and pocket that spread and earn that as kind of their arbitrage profit. That spread minus transaction costs of kind of going both ways. Now, um, some of the things that make this more, uh, more costly involve, um, first of all, the large size of the, uh, of the um, um, uh, ETF, uh, uh, the, yeah, the or actually the basket, uh, yeah. which in for something like uh, some of the most liquid ETFs, it doesn't, it's not a big deal. But but certainly some of the kind of below median sized uh, ETFs, uh, the you know the size of each creation basket can be several days of trading volume. Right. So if there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a mispricing, uh, an arbitrageur would actually kind of face some some risk there, kind of trying to trade between the ETF and the underlying, the and kind of build. Yeah, yeah. It take a while to get it all done. Exactly. You kind of have to build up your position over several days. So if you just see an instantaneous mispricing, you don't necessarily want to jump at it, at least very aggressively at that point. Maybe you'll kind of want to see that it's persistent, and then you'll kind of eventually jump in. So that's certainly kind of one, one kind of obvious thing that kind of just stood up um, when you look at it. But, uh, but actually, but across the, even among the kind of more liquid ones, uh, more liquid ETFs, uh, there's still, uh, still kind of a very big driver, which is uh, actually two things. Uh, so there's illiquidity in the underlying asset, um, so even if the ETF itself is liquid, um, the underlying, the is, underlying not is not necessarily. So, for example, with high yield, high yield bonds, uh, many of those, you know, the, some of these high yield bond funds have may have like some tens of billions of dollars in assets and are trading maybe up to like some hundreds of millions per day, and um, and still, um, so they are very liquid themselves. But the underlying uh, underlying bond issues are. St may not trade at all for several days. Um, and they certainly have a huge number of those uh, issues in the, in the index. So, um, so that's a case where many of the underlyings, uh, if you're, kind of, if you're as, an, as an authorized participant, want to come in and buy the underlying portfolio, um, that's, uh, that underlying portfolio can be, quite a, can, can be much more costly to trade. So that's, that's one part uh, the, when you have that kind of higher trading cost in the underlying. Uh, the second part is, um, um, just the time zone differences. So you get uh, just the difficulty of, let's say you're, you have like a Japanese equity ETF, which may be where the underlying assets may be very liquid, but if the ETF is trading in the US and you as an arbitrageur try to profit from the, any price spreads between those right. two, you're trading across different time zones and uh, with zero overlap. And it's, uh, it, can, uh, it, it certainly is doable, but it does kind of introduce some, some timing risk or at least requires you to manage the timing risk, maybe with using futures and things like that. So it does kind of make it a little bit more complicated operation. And again, the, the, the more complicated it gets, it's, it's yet another kind of cost for the arbitrageurs. Yes, so, so stale pricing uh, refers to um, you know, this, this case that I mentioned with high yield bonds where some fund is or some bonds may not be trading for several days. And, and then if you compute the official net asset value of the fund, it may be based on, the, on either the closing prices or actually in the case of bonds, it's, it's typically based on the, on the uh, bid prices for bonds. But if something hasn't traded for several days, even the bid prices are not necessarily very good indicators, may not really have meaningful volume behind them and so on. Uh, so that, that, those are issues that can really... Uh, Throw off the net asset value, and that's kind of another that's kind of another difficulty that you face as an ETF investor. If something deviates from the official NAV, 
but it happens in an ETF where the underlying is is fairly stale, and you can't be you can't really trust the net asset, the official net asset value. Then you know what do you do with that number? That can get that's that's kind of one of the questions that I wanted to address in that paper. Part of it has to do with the stale um, NAVs, so that's certainly one factor in it. But um, but when I when you look at kind of the true inefficiency part, um, uh, you, you which uh, which I found to be fairly significant, uh, it's in more than half of the observed kind of premiums relative to NAV tend to be actually about inefficiency. Um, so um, uh, when you look at that part, that tends to be really kind of fund specific. So what I do is I kind of I looked at um, a peer group of funds. So very similar ETFs, ETFs that may even have this an identical underlying asset, and still they may not move in lockstep with each other. I mean, they certainly should, but in reality, we may see one fund going being up a little bit one day, while the same, while another fund with the same index is down, and that certainly is an indi indication that there's some other stuff going on that's kind of creating a wedge between these two, at least in the near term. Something that most likely will revert. But, uh, but it is kind of a near-term inefficiency. And that, that's kind of really, really specific to each individual fund at any point in time. It's true that like once, you know, for a good number of ETFs, you have, uh, and I found that I was actually able to form these peer groups for about uh, almost 90% of the ETFs by assets, by, by, by their market cap. So you can find uh, pretty meaningful peer groups for a lot of the ETFs that investors really care about. But certainly there are some ETFs that are kind of unique in a particular niche of the market where you don't really have a good comparison point. And for those funds, you can't really use this approach. But, um, but, but when, you, when you have at least two ETFs in a particular niche, that's, uh, that's where you know, this kind of peer group approach can be used. And, and I found it to be, um, I mean, it's both conceptually fairly simple, and, and it actually does kind of directly address this, uh, this issue of, uh, you, know, you, you know, it basically allows you to kind of sidestep any issues with staleness in NAV. Now you're just working with fully traded prices. So, in fact, in the paper, I also say that for, for many investors, I guess a general kind of super easy, easy rule of thumb would be just to avoid trading during volatile days. So you kind of wait for, you know, one or two days of like fairly relative calm in the market. Um, before you trade some of these ETFs that have the biggest issues, such as uh, uh, ETFs with uh, international underlying exposures across many time zones, uh, or the ETFs that have um, uh, very illiquid underlying, such as the, some of these corporate bond funds that we that we discussed. And so that's that's kind of one way around it. But uh, uh, but you can also look at the peer groups, uh, and that's again not not conceptually. Not not very complicated, right? It's just a tiny, tiny bit more work to identify the peer groups, but still, um, you have screeners for that. You can go to ETF.com or some other yeah. fund screeners to uh, to let you um, find those kind of peer groups, and then uh, then kind of look at that. So that that's I think is a pretty pretty robust way to get at that issue. Yeah. First of all, the, the premiums uh, the premiums do tend to spike up when there is um, when kind of overall market volatility is high. So you do observe that um, relationship between the VIX and the um, 
and the level of dispersion in ETF premiums and discounts. Um, but uh, at the same time, also net asset values tend to be more informative when, um, when prices haven't moved aggressively recently. Because if it takes for a net asset value in some, uh, um, in, let's say in an international equity fund or, or a high yield bond fund, it may take a few days for a net asset value to kind of catch up with the, uh, um, to kind of the market prices, today's market prices. So if the market's been fairly flat, that kind of gives you that extra cushion, you know, sure. where let's kind of things stabilize a little bit before you trade. So that's another kind of very simple rule of thumb. And some, some investors also use futures as a way to, let's say with international, uh, international ETFs, they may look at futures to adjust kind of for, for the price, price changes that they've seen since the foreign market closed. But, uh, but again, that's a little bit more than, I mean, individual investors are unlikely to look at that, but something that kind of professional investors could. The SEC has been looking into this in the last few years. Uh, there's been um, a couple of years ago, they called uh, for industry, various kind of practitioners to submit their proposals about the few, some proposed new, some proposed rule changes. And, um, and I know that some, you know, some practitioners, uh, some firms uh, submitted uh, material that, that referenced this paper and, you know, the, some of the issues that, uh, that I discussed about the inefficiency in the ETF market. Um, it has had, uh, there's also some providers have look, uh, looked at things like net asset, kind of basing ETF prices on net asset values directly. Um, uh, so NAV based pricing is kind of one proposal that, uh, that has also kind of referenced this, uh, this work as well. You would submit your, your, you submit your trades relative to NAV. So uh -huh. you'd, very, you'd be very well aware of whether you're trading at a premium or a discount. Right. And I mean, you, you, might, you might still know that like NAV in the certain market situations is, is likely to be either, either an overestimate or underestimate of the true value, but at least it would make it very salient, you know, whether you're right. trading, you know, what, you know, if you might be trading at a, at a premium or a discount. Um, and then um, actually some of the European regulators have also, uh, also looked into this. So um, um, I don't, I'm not aware of any concrete uh, uh, action at this point, um, and it's not clear to me that there should be concrete action from the regular point, regulatory uh, agencies either. I mean, I think this is more of a market um, inefficiency that is, I think whenever you see a new market develop, there's always, when new products arise, whatever, it, it always takes, it takes a while for, for market participants to learn about the new products and get used to trading them. So I think this is kind of part of the natural market cycle that you know, there's been enormous explosive growth in ETFs and uh, you know, just, I mean, now reaching like $5 trillion and it just happened at such a, such a rapid, <laughs> that, that, yeah, it's, it will take, I mean, it will take, take, take a while for people to kind of learn how to best kind of use, yeah. use these products. But uh, and certainly market, you know, market makers are keeping up with the demand, but they haven't, uh, but there's still some residual mispricings to date. Uh, whether they will be largely eliminated in the future, that remains to be seen. But at least my paper is uh, is kind of one attempt to highlight this issue, so that both the consumers of ETFs who are kind of placing the trades, as well as potential uh, market makers who um, who could uh, make the market more efficient, are uh, you know maybe a little bit more aware of these issues uh, as a result of this uh, you know work that I and uh, and some some follow up work that others have done as well.